The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. Some of you have read the book Prince Caspian, and C.S. Lewis tells the story there of, of a land where there they had not seen Aslan at work for hundreds of years. There were prophecies that were still to be fulfilled, but there was much that was wrong. There was a murderous king who was ruling the Narnians. And these messengers came from a faraway land with a message of hope, but the people couldn't believe it. They, they doubted, they distrusted these messengers, and still Aslan came, and he came to defeat enemies and to, and to set captives free, and along the way he would tenderly call more followers to his side. An awkward teenage girl was among them, a, a boy being beaten by an abusive man, a tired-looking math teacher who had been plagued by stubborn schoolboys, and a little old woman who knows Aslan the moment she sees him. He would heal wounds. If you know the story, he would even put Reepicheep back together. His tail had been broken and he restored it. And Lucy was the first to see the great lion, the king, the true king. Aslan said, Lucy, you're bigger That is because you are older, little one, he replied. She asks, not because you are bigger? I am not, but every year that you grow older, you will find me bigger. And and I I love that because that's really like the true story of Exodus chapter 6, where we're going to be today. Moses has written about a time where they hadn't seen their true king at work for hundreds of years. There was a murderous king ruling Egypt. There were prophecies still waiting to be fulfilled, but even as this messenger Moses comes from a faraway land, they don't trust him. They doubt because they were so discouraged. So this message fell on their deaf ears. But there were unfulfilled prophecies. There was prophecies in Genesis of a lion to come, a, a serpent crusher. A savior. There's promise of salvation that Israel would begin to experience, and then an even greater salvation to come through what was going to happen for Abraham's children. God would fulfill these promises now by conquering, by liberating, by rescuing, but also by helping and, and healing and restoring. And he's going to call others along the way to himself. And in this story, the children of God will see Him as bigger. And and the more and more we know of God, and and they're going to learn more of this God, they're going to see Him as bigger the more that they grow and the more that we grow. Let's look together at Exodus chapter 6. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, this is God's strong hand, He will send them out, and with a strong hand, He will drive them out of this land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, 
I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. But still, God is going to do everything He says He's going to do here. And the main point of the passage is is clear from the key words, the repeated words, I am, four times. And then, I will, seven times. This is the Almighty I am who says, I will. And because He's Almighty, this I am, when he says, I will, he has the power to bring it about, which is good news for us. And so for our outline, I want to just take those key phrases. First of all, we're going to see I am, his name. And then we're going to see I will, his promise. And then you shall, the application. But first, I am. Look again at verse 2. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. And then look at verse 6. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. And then verse 7, middle of the verse, you shall know. So this is where it's going. You shall know that I am the Lord your God. And then again in verse 8, look at the end of verse 8. I am the Lord. This is what Moses and Israel needed to hear and needed to know. And they didn't know it yet like they were going to. But this is what we need as well. It's been said Exodus is a God-centered book with a God-centered message about how we need to have a God-centered life. Whatever problems we face, whatever difficulties there are, the most important thing to know is who God is. To place our trust in the one who says, I am the Lord. When there's trouble in your family or in your life and you don't know how to bring peace, he says, I am the Lord. When a relationship's broken or can't be mended, he says, I am the Lord. When you're trying to do something, you're just discouraged, things aren't going right and you're not sure if the situation's ever going to get better, he says again and he keeps saying it, I am the Lord. And that word Lord there in your Bible is in all capital letters in most of your translations. That's the, the name, the great Jehovah or Yahweh was probably how it was pronounced in, in Hebrew. And the purpose of all this is so that you will know that I am Yahweh, that I am the Lord. 
And the context of, of this I am the Lord statement, which he begins to say here, and then it's going to become a theme throughout Scripture, but it was set up from chapter 5 when Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and say, Thus says Yahweh, let my people go. And he says, Who is Yahweh? Who is the Lord? I do not know the Lord. I do not know Yahweh, and I will not let your people go. So this is the answer to the question, Pharaoh doesn't know who he is. But Israel is going to know who he is. In verse 22 of, of chapter 5, Moses turned to Yahweh or to the Lord and he asked, O Lord, why? And, and this is Lord where it's not all capital letters. This is the, the Hebrew name Adonai. And this is where some of the different names of, of God come together. But in verse chapter 6, verse 3, he says, I was known as God Almighty. That's El Shaddai. That was a name from, from Genesis where God revealed Himself as the Almighty God. This became a precious truth to the people of Israel. Like Psalm 91, He who dwells in the shadow of the Almighty can rest there in, in the Most High. Elizabeth Elliot wrote a book with that title, Talking about the time when she lost her husband and those events in 1956 in, in Ecuador. If you remember that story, she trusted that God was almighty and sovereign over that and that she could rest in the shadow of the almighty, even in the, the darkness of what she was going through, to rest in the almighty God, all-powerful El Shaddai. This is the one that when the wrong seems so strong, he is the ruler yet, like we sang. So what's in a name? Well, there's a lot in a name. With God, chapter 6, verse 3, he says, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as El Shaddai, or as God Almighty, but by my name Yahweh, or the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. This is, goes back to Genesis 17. But also in the chapters right around, there's a number of different names by which God is revealed. He's revealed a few chapters earlier as El Elyon, God Most High. Melchizedek speaks of Him that way, the Most High God. And then Adonai, which is the term used here in, when Exodus, when, when he's talking to the Lord, it's the term for Lord or, or Master. That also is used of the Lord in that same section of Genesis. And then El Olam, Genesis 21, I think it's verse 33, God everlasting, He is unchanging, He's eternal, He's the Ancient of Days, He's without beginning or end, is what is emphasized by that name. You may recognize the story from Genesis 22 of Abraham and Isaac on, on the mount, and where he says, the Lord will provide the Lamb, my son, and then the Lord provides in the place of His Son on the mountain there, but they're looking forward in faith, saying the Lord will provide. Jehovah Jireh is what was said of that very place. And that was the faith of, of Abraham and his descendants looking to when Yahweh would provide, not just in the past, but in the future. There's a song that I learned growing up in, in our church circles, Jehovah Jireh, my provider, his grace is sufficient for me. Jehovah Jireh, my Lord will provide all my needs. That's what that emphasizes. And maybe you remember a song that Michael Carter wrote a number of decades ago, putting some of these names to song El Shaddai, El Elyon, Adonai, Age to Age, You're Still the Same, that's El Olam. 
by the power of your name. You saved the son of Abraham. That's the Jehovah Jireh story. And to the outcast on her knees, you were the God who really sees. That's Elroy. That's what Hagar said of God who, who saw her. She says, you're the, you're the God who sees me, who cares me, looks after me. You can read that wonderful story in Genesis chapter 16. And by your might, the song says, you set your people free. That's what the name Yahweh, Lord in all capital letters, is going to emphasize in the Exodus story. It was a name that was known to them earlier, but it's a name that they're now going to know in a greater way. In the time of Job, which was the time of Abraham also, Shaddai or El Shaddai Almighty became the main name for God. So if you read Job, you'll see that all over the place. And and the end of Job, he says, fault finders are not to contend with the Almighty. That's what Job learns. And Job also says at the end that he learned that he already knew that God could do all things because he's almighty. But he says, I, I've, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear. So he'd, he'd heard these, these, these other names of God by the ear, but he says, but now my eye sees you. And he says, I, I repent. He now sees God in a greater way. He'd heard some things about God, but now he sees them as God speaks to him there at the end. And I think that's the idea of Exodus 6, verse Three, in the old days, people knew of his power. He was the almighty creator. They've known that since creation. And the flood showed his almighty power to judge. But in Exodus, they're going to know him as Savior in a way that people did not know him before. They're going to know in verses 6 through 8, experientially, his redeeming, his delivering out of slavery, which his people had not experienced before. And so, The name Yahweh was spoken in Genesis. It was spoken over 30 times on the lips of people like Abraham and others. So this this is not a contradiction. This is not saying that no one knew or spoke of the name the Lord Yahweh before. So the question is, why does he say in verse 3, By my name Yahweh, or Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Well, remember Exodus 3. If you weren't with us, that's where he comes in the burning bush. And Moses asked him, what, what's, when I go to Israel and they ask, what's your name or, or who are you? What shall I tell them? And God, God answers, tell them, I am who I am. Tell them. And then he says, Yahweh, the Lord, has sent you. So he's, he's revealing that this I am is connected with this name. I am means I'm self-sufficient. I'm self-existent. And it's, it's actually the first-person verb form of the name Yahweh. It's the same root word. But he's, he's letting them know this is the, the nature behind the name. And, and also someone is, a guy named Walt Kaiser, a scholar, has pointed out, this is not the Hebrew form to say, I did not let them know my name. There was another way they could have said that in their language. But also this word know is deeper than the word know in English, which can just be a mental acquaintance. And a name in the Bible is deeper than how we use names today. We use trendy names sometimes today. Uh, they, they, in Bible times, a name just wasn't what you were called. A name was your character. Or, or the name was what they, they saw in you or what they hoped you would live out your name and what it meant with, with God. His names are his very character and what he will 
live out. The, the name of God is the nature of God. And so Exodus 6.3 is not saying that name, the Lord Yahweh, was not spoken or known before. In fact, Genesis 4.26 says, In the days of Seth, men began to call on the name of the Lord, the name of Yahweh. But the verse right before that, I think, gives us a, a hint as to what kind of knowing is in this context here. The same verb is used where it says, Adam knew his wife Eve, and they gave birth to a son Seth. So he knew his wife, not, not that he knew her name Eve or knew how to pronounce it. It's that he knew her in the closest, most intimate, covenant, love, relationship. There was a, a family there. Or just to put it simply, I, I knew the name Jamie when I was a kid. I knew the name Jamie. I could pronounce it. But for more than 25 years now, I've known Jamie as my wife in an in a infinitely deeper way. I know who she is. I know her nature. I know how she thinks. I know how she feels. Not as much as I need to. I I've sometimes realize I've got a lot to still learn. But that's, I think, much like what's happening here. Israel's going to now know in a personal relationship the name, but they're, they're still going to need to keep learning. It's a lifelong thing. For them and for us. I was also reminded 11 years ago this week, I brought our son, Mateus, into our, our family here in the States. He was already a part of our family, just not with us. But I remember I was thinking about this. In my weeks in Congo, I had this little picture book with his different family members that I would show them. And I would, I would say, see, that's, that's Ella. That's Adam. That's Mateus. And he would try to say the names and and he could repeat the names. So I'm, I'm showing, I'm trying to teach him by, by the name who this person is. But it, it really wasn't until almost exactly 11 years ago when we came here to the States. And in person, he was able to, to begin to get to know these people who he had heard their names before. He, he had seen these pictures and, and heard whatever he could understand about them. He, he now experientially and relationally knows the person behind their names, and they're still continuing to get to know each other. That's what's going on here. Exodus 4 is when God first says, Israel is my son. Let my son go, that he may worship me. And, and so they had word pictures before of, of, of this name, this God, and his relationship, and what that would look like. But now he's making himself known in his person. And he says in, at the burning bush, I am going to come down. He's personally going to come down and intervene. His full character, his, his covenant love is now going to be on display. He's going to make them family in a way that they were not before. And this is how God later talks about his adoption of Israel and the prophet Ezekiel. And he describes it like rescuing an orphan child from death. Ezekiel chapter 16 this is part of what God says. I pledged myself to you. I entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine. And then he goes on in the prophecy to talk about the day I chose Israel, I made myself known to them in the land of Egypt, saying, I am Yahweh. So it was in the land of Egypt that God 
chose them and made known to them his, his name and his nature in this way as their, as their father. He's adopting them. He's bringing them into the covenant land. So look back at Exodus 6 now, verse 7, with all that in mind. I will take you to be my people. So this is the context of the Exodus event where they're going to come out of Egypt. And notice this promise. I will be your God and you shall know... That I am Yahweh, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land. So there's that word know again. He hadn't been made known in this way in, in earlier days. But he says, now when I do this and bring you out of Egypt, you're going to know that I am Yahweh. As I bring you out. My, my covenant fulfilling character, you're going to know now. It wasn't experientially known before. You're going to know me as a rescuer from burdens. You're going to know me as a liberator of slaves. You're going to know me as a redeemer. And you're going to know me as a father. See, in Genesis, they used the name. But in Exodus, they knew the name. They used the name before, but now they knew the name. They knew him as a promise maker before. They're going to know him as a promise keeper now. They had to live by faith almost completely earlier. Now they're going to live by sight also. They had to live by faith for a lot of years. Now they're going to live by sight in a short period of time. There's going to be a tremendous amount of things that they will see that no one else had ever seen before God do these wonders in the land of Egypt. And they're going to witness His salvation power. And so that takes us from His name to, number two, his promises. In verse 6 through 8, it has seven. Look at the middle of verse 6. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And then it goes on. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. One writer says this is like, like seven blows of a hammer. He just keeps hammering it home. I will. I will. I will. He is securing their, their, their future. He's saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the one who holds this together. He's, he's driving it home. I will. You can't, but I will. He's going to complete what he began. I will bring you out, and then I will bring you into the land. I swore to give it to you. He says, I will give it to you. And he's going to deliver, and he's going to redeem and take them as his own son. He says, I will redeem with an outstretched arm. Think of this outstretched arm towards, towards Egypt. He's going to show his mighty power, but also there's an outstretched arm towards his people who he's going to welcome lovingly into his family. This mighty arm, this loving arm. We, we sang about how he, by his hand, causes us to stand upheld by his gracious, omnipotent hand. His almighty hand is gracious. And it upholds us. It helps us to stand. This is God Almighty who says, I will. And the heart of the promise in verse 6 is, I will redeem. I will redeem. It's the first time God has used this word redeem. 
And this becomes a huge theme that really drives the rest of, of history. In fact, we call it redemptive history from here on out. It is his story of how he redeems. But this, this word redeem is, is a word that we use kind of lightly and cheaply in our culture. So we talk about you can redeem Five cents for these used bottles. We might use the word redeem. Or you can redeem this coupon at, at Walmart. Or, or maybe we talk about sports. They're going to get a chance, this team that did really badly. Right? They're going to get a chance to maybe redeem themselves next year. And so the fans and the coaches and everyone's thinking, yeah, maybe they're going to redeem themselves. And it's not very likely. But they're, they're, they're going to maybe, maybe do better. <laughs> Maybe if they work hard, you think. But see, the biblical concept, when God says, I will redeem, it's, it's not recycling leftovers. And it's not revenge in sports. And it's the opposite of human effort. This is not something that people can bring about by just trying harder. It's the opposite of anything cheap. This is something that God alone can do. And He does it by precious blood. He buys back. That's what it means. He owned Israel already. He owns everything. He's God. He's the almighty creator, but he's going to buy them back as the Lord, as the redeemer. And he's going to bring them into his family by adoption. So this is the first time God speaks this word redeem, but Moses would write this word later throughout the law. If an Israelite was sold as a slave because they had this debt that they couldn't pay, they would, they would work for a certain number of years. They had this big debt, but there was a way that a family member who was a, a next of kin or a, the closest of kin, a kinsman, could redeem them, could actually pay the, the price, could step in and pay the debt for them. The, the legal system wouldn't do that for them, but a, a family member who loved them could do that for them and would have to agree that I'm going to take full responsibility for this person or this whole situation. I'm going to take them in as my own I'm going to take them into to my home. I'm going to put myself on the line as a, as a surety here. I'm going to provide all the needs for them. I'm going to buy back everything that was lost. And I'm going to restore them as family. If you read the story of Ruth, that's what it's all about. A, a kinsman, redeemer, and land and inheritance were also part of that redemption promise. So verse 8 here is going to promise land as a part of the inheritance with this redemption one writer says the word redeem is the essence of the meaning of the entire Exodus story. This is how God is going to bring people into his family. And that takes us to verse 7, where he takes them as his people to be their God. One writer says the essential meaning of the entire book of Exodus is that the Lord redeemed and adopted his people, and he promised them that he would be their God that they would know Him and His name in the fullest sense. And when chapter 6, verse 7 says, I will take you to be my people, it's the same verb for take in chapter 2, where there's this baby floating in the river, and Pharaoh's daughter has her servants come and take this child and, and bring it to her, and then the child is also taken to, to the mother to nurse and to care for it, and is, is taken as as her own son, Pharaoh's daughter's 
son. And, and, and this language is suggesting that what she did for Moses adopting him, that's what God is going to do for Israel. He's going to take them in. He's going to make sure their, their needs are, are cared for as these little needy children. He's going he's to nourish them and nurture them, and he's going to bring them all the way. He's going to do that for them. It's the, the same word take also when, when Jacob has his grandsons that he takes to himself, and he's, he's taking them into the family of Israel. He's making them tribes of Israel, Genesis 48. It's a wonderful story how he is, in essence, adopting these African-born sons who were born to Joseph's wife who, who came from, from Africa. And, and now these sons are being adopted and Ephraim and Manasseh become tribes of Israel and, and are still listed among the tribes of Israel later in Scripture. They were brought fully into the family at that moment. These sons that were born to Joseph from Egypt. And this later would be used of taking, to take the blood of the lamb also in the Passover, to take its blood, to take the lamb, to sacrifice it. And and I'm told in the Passover Seder to this day that some Jews still around the world celebrate, they recount this and they recite the very promises of Exodus 6. This is something that's tied in with the Passover story. And verse 7 becomes the heart of the covenant. He says, I take you as my people, and I will be your God. It was at a Passover meal that Jesus took the cup in his hand. And he said, these are covenant words spoken in Exodus, but Jesus says, this is the new covenant in my blood. This is the new covenant in my blood, and that comes from another passage that also has seven I will promises, Jeremiah 31, where the prophet said, days are coming when I will, this is God speaking, I will cut a new covenant, not like the covenant I made in Egypt. He says, I was a a husband to them, declares Yahweh, but this is the covenant which I will cut I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. And then this is is the heart of that new covenant promise. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So that covenant from Exodus, I will be their God, they shall be my people, that ties all the covenants together. That's that's. Covenant grace, we might say, that ties them all together in redemption. And right out of Exodus 6, now my people, he says, I will be your God. He says, you're going to be my people, I will be your God. Even in the Old Testament, those promises were going to be applied to future, newer covenant grace to come. Bigger and better than what Israel would experience. Israel would get physical deliverance, but they also use this language for spiritual deliverance. For God's people. And notice verse 7 has a future tense also. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and then you shall know that I am. So, where this is going is that you shall. There's an application for us. We need to know who this God is, and that takes us from his name, I am, and his promise, I, I will, to the you shall. We need to know this as well. This is the 
the application for us. So I want to start with how Old Testament Israel applied the truths of this passage and then how the New Testament church does because Israel is going to come to know God in these chapters ahead. They're going to come to know Him more and the prophets are going to repeat and apply these truths from Exodus 6. So let me just give you one from Isaiah 43. Do not fear. So this concept of God being our Redeemer, it should help us not to fear. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. This is Isaiah 43. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. He says, I've I've covenanted and committed to be that kinsman Redeemer to you. I'm going to be with you. They will not overflow you, for I am Yahweh, the Lord. He says, you are precious in my sight, since you are honored, and I love you. Do not fear, for I am with you, he says. And then he says, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory. He's calling them from afar, from nations like us as well, to come and to be a part of the redeemed. Isaiah 54, 8, with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says your Redeemer. And then Isaiah 63 says this about the Exodus. In His love and in His mercy, He redeemed them. And He lifted them and carried them all the days. He caused His glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses. You, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer from of old. Psalm 103 is another place that celebrates God's love using the language from this type of scene. He's a, he's a father who has, has compassion on his children, but it's greater than, than the heavens are above the earth. And it says, bless the Lord, O my soul, forget none of his benefits. He forgives your iniquities. And listen to this, he redeems your life from the pit, and then he crowns you with love and compassion. There's a story that was featured on MSNBC some years ago about a little boy in Kenya named Benjamin. He had actually been thrown into an 18-foot hole in Nairobi. The hole was the public toilet. There was a passing stranger who heard his cry. Then they spent hours trying to rescue little Benjamin, digging down into the muck and the filth and they rescued him from death and they brought this Benjamin to new life home trust and he was adopted by Denison Osmondi and Allison and Tony Merida who knows them personally says what a what a picture this is of what God did for Israel in that deepest and darkest muddy, miry place where they were in bondage in Egypt, how he brought them out of that. But what a picture also of what God has done for us as well, who were in the deepest mire and muck of our sin, and yet the Father redeems your life from the pit. And then he crowns you with love and compassion. And he brings you into a loving family. This is what it means to be the Son of the Lord. Meditate on what it means to be the son, the daughter of this Lord. 
What a Lord He is. We can sing, redeemed through His infinite mercy. His child and what? Forever I am. So Israel could sing about being redeemed. We can sing in an even greater way. Redeemed through His infinite mercy. His child and forever I am. How wonderful the Father's love in Exodus 6, verse 7. Amen. And this is how the New Testament quotes that phrase and applies it to the church in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16. I will be their God, and they shall be my people, he says of the church. I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And then Corinthians also says, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. All of the promises find their yes, find their amen in Jesus. He is the promise keeper and the promise fulfiller. It's in Jesus that the I will of God's promises become I did. All the I wills become I did. And ultimately we think of how he says, it is finished on the cross. All the prophecies that weren't fulfilled in Old Testament times that pointed to to his salvation, his redemptive work, everything relating to redemption was finished on the cross once for all. That's why it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, his finished work alone. And so it's been said, as we listen to the Exodus, I like this word picture, we hear the first strains of a melody that later becomes a symphony in the gospel. Jesus is the liberator. Jesus is the redeemer. And we see those notes in the orchestra, and it gets bigger, and there's more instruments that are going to be added, but the notes are already here. He's the liberator. He's the redeemer. And salvation is not about us doing something for God. It's about what God has done for us in Christ. We can't do anything to bring ourselves out of this situation. Neither could Israel. But what we've got to do is trust in the one who turned the I wills of salvation into the I have done it of salvation. That's what he did. And so God promised to bring Israel out from their burdens into liberty. In the gospel, we sing things like this at Calvary, there my burdened soul found liberty. At Calvary, my burdened soul, I found liberty there because Jesus was on the cross, my burden gladly bearing. He, he took my burden and he gladly bore it so that I can say the burden of my heart rolled away at the cross. Those are the things we can sing so that we can say, now I am happy all the day. If we meditate on what we've been saved from and how he has taken our burdens and, and borne our burdens for us and how we found liberty at the cross, we should be happy. We should have the joy of the Lord. That's our strength. But we also still find burdens, don't they? They keep coming back. So we rejoice, we, we worship Him here, but then we go back to life and these burdens come back. What do we do with those burdens? Psalm fifty-five twenty-two says, Cast your burdens on the Lord and He will sustain you. So when those burdens come rolling back, roll those burdens back, cast them back to the Lord, cast all your cares upon Him because He cares for you. He will sustain you. But think of what he's done for you. When you're reminded to think about this one thing or this situation that troubles you and burdens you, think of all the the burdens that he's taken away. Think of what he's done. Ephesians 1, he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's chosen us. He has adopted us. 
He has given us redemption through His blood. He has made known to us, Ephesians 1 says, the mystery of His will. And, and He has, Jesus has, the name that is above every name that could be named in this age or in the age to come. Exodus 6 says, in old days, God didn't make known His name. But Jesus prays this in John 17, that they may have my joy. This is part of what He prays in John 17. Listen to these words. I He says to God, I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. So he made known the name and the Gospels, but he's going to continue to make it known. And here's where he's going with that. He says, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. That eternal love that was spoken of earlier of the father son and the spirit that they've always had that that love he's saying that that love would be in them and that i would be in them what love what joy when jesus says i will like that in the same night in the upper room jesus made known god's name with some of these other i will promises these are from john 13 to 16 He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and reveal myself to him. I'm going to make myself more known to him who loves you, Father. I will, Jesus says, I will do whatever you ask in my name, he says, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. He says, I will do what you ask in in my name. And again, that's not just using the name. It's, It's his character, his nature, what's consistent with that. Listen to this, same occasion. My children, I will be with you. Isn't that a great promise? I will be with you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He's not going to leave you alone. You are loved in him. He will come to you. He says, if I go and prepare a place for you, he's talking about heaven, I will Come again and bring you to myself that where I am, there you will be also. This is the Lord who says, I will. And even at the end of our Exodus passage, Israel hears, but they still doubt. We can praise the Lord. This is not going to be the end of the story for the doubter. And it wasn't the end of the story for Thomas when he doubted in the New Testament. The risen Lord met him where he was. He showed him his outstretched arm. He showed him his his mighty hand that had nail prints in it. And Thomas, when he sees that, says to him, My Lord and my God. Yahweh said in Exodus, You shall know that I am your Lord and your God. Thomas, who initially doubted, sees that Jesus is the risen Lord. And he says, You are my Lord. You are my God. God And John's gospel then makes this comment, this is why he has written this gospel, that we too would believe and would have life in his name, that we would see that Jesus is Lord and God. If he's not your Lord, he's not your Savior, he's not your Redeemer. Redemption is, is not universal, but redemption is, is for those who believe, those who he has chosen and brought into his family. If he's not your Lord, God is not your Father. And he, there's a warning also with this language of God Almighty because God Almighty appeared to Abraham and then, but he's going to appear again as God Almighty in Revelation. And he uses that language. He's going to come with a sharp sword to strike down nations. 
Revelation 19 says when Jesus comes again, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. This Almighty God, his wrath is going to be poured out on this world. And Jesus comes to tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, the all-powerful God, the Creator. The one who judged this world by water is going to come and judge it again by fire. But there is hope in Revelation 5. And here's the hope that John sees. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And John looks and he sees the lion, but it's, it's, he sees actually a lamb. The lion is the lamb. And, he's, and, he's, and they say this to the lamb. You were slain and you have redeemed us by your blood. This is the believers who are saying you've redeemed us. They look to the lamb as their, as their only hope. Everyone who repents and believes Jesus on the cross takes the wrath of God the Almighty on Himself. He takes the full fury of the wrath of God on Himself to take our place so that He can take away our sins, so that He can then take us into His family by redeeming grace. He is that kinsman redeemer who paid the greatest price, paid for His own life, to buy everything back that had been lost to sin, to take full responsibility, to bring us into His family to love us, to care for us, to covenant with us. And there's land for us too. Not in Palestine, but in paradise. There's land promised for all of God's people. There's a new earth that we inherit. To all who will meekly receive Him by faith, Jesus says, the meek shall inherit what? The earth. There's a new world coming, uh, or a renewed world. Exodus 6 Starts with God saying, Now you shall see what I will do. The New Testament also calls us to believe, to, to see what God has done. And it uses this word now for the gospel offer. Now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now, the gospel says, He commands all people everywhere to repent. It means turn from your sin, trust in Him today. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Jesus says, here's another I am and I will. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And he says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I am. I will. Jesus says, I'm the bread. I'm the one, your source of life, your your sustenance. Come to me. He says, if you come to me truly in faith, I will never cast you out. So I want to end with his I will promises in the end of the Bible, the last book of Revelation, where the lamb overcomes, they behold the lamb who's overcome, and his people, it says, overcome by the blood of the lamb. Here's some promises of Jesus just in Revelation 2 and 3. You can look at these later. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. I will give him a white stone and a new name, and I will give him the morning star. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not, here's an I will not, I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father. I will make him a pillar, Jesus says. I will write on him the name of my God and my new name. He's going to write 
the name of God on him and his new name. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, listen to this, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He says, I will, I'll let you come and sit with me, dine with you, and even sit with me near the Father. How wonderful the love of our Lord. And here's what it says in the very end, the last vision of Revelation. Listen to this language. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. There's that ultimate fulfillment of the Exodus promise. And then he said to me, it is done. There's no more I will now, because it is done. I am the beginning and the end. And God says, I will be his God, and he will be my son. And it also says in that chapter, I will give to the one who thirsts from the springs of the water of life without cost. What a Lord we have. Amen. What a Father. What a Savior. Let's pray to him. Oh, great God, we... What can we say to your grace, to your promises, to your faithfulness, despite your people's doubting and distrusting and sin, discouragement? Lord, you are faithful. We thank you for that. Help us as we sing, but also as we speak to people here and others that we will see this week. Lord, help us to Think much of you and make much of you. We pray these things in the matchless name, the name that is above every name, the name at which every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen.